Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 112, Venison, Here and Abroad, with Simon Majumdar. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick has a bucket list chat with food writer and food network personality, Simon Majumnar. Simon lays out some knowledge and history of venison, including how venison has been viewed in the UK and how it differs here in the United States. They have discussions on tikka masala, using yogurt as a marinade, and a food game called Good, Better, Best, featuring a winter favorite, pot roast. Pour yourself a dark pint on this one and settle in for a next episode of Huntivore. Well, hey, folks. Beautiful evening this evening. In fact, the weather is coming down here in Michigan. We have a full-on blizzard starting here. Yes. Yes, Simon. we're, We're looking at six inches uh throughout this weekend kind of out of the nowhere but at the same time for us deer hunters getting out there with the firearms this weekend i don't think we can find anything better than chasing white tails in white powder snow that's just going to be a dream come true everybody's going to get the wool out everybody's going to be getting the hot coffee in the thermos and they're going to be heading out to the deer stands i know simon you're already beginning to chill uh chill out a little bit you're in uh southern california am i right we are, yeah. So uh, my wife, uh, well, my wife's been here since I got married to her about twelve years ago, and so I moved home from London, which is, um, you know, a little bit rainy and drizzly and all of that. Um, we don't get a lot of snow because it doesn't tell tend to gather very much on the London streets, but uh, I'm used to a little bit of it. But uh, yeah, I love love getting out in snow when I went up north in England, and uh, in fact when I went out rabbit hunting a long while ago now but i went out and it was snowing and that was pretty that was pretty fun too so uh yes it's uh it's fun when you get out there but uh, in it we don't get a lot of it in uh, in southern california it has to be said well i do apologize i didn't do a formal um introduction here i felt that you <laughs> didn't need one but for folks who are unaware tonight i am with a fantastic food writer a wonderful food historian he is uh, a network or he's a personality on the network or the, excuse me on food network uh anywhere from a guest host to uh a judge on those an amazing cook and what i picked up learning from another podcast is that he is the right hand of the great salami we are here with simon <laughs> majumnar simon again yeah thanks so much for much thank you so much for being on the show um, yeah, that was an inside joke that I found out from, I think it was the Table 5 podcast. Your brother declared himself the Great Salami? When he was uh, about uh, six, maybe seven, and he sat himself up on the couch on a, 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 on a stool and put a uh, like a drape around his neck and had a, bro- a broom as a his thing, and then made us all the, the other. What well, now? We're all in our fifties, but had us all crawl along the ground and uh, worship him as the great salami, which I, we still remember. But it does go to show that food was never very far from us. And in fact, even now, uh, my my uh, sister and her wife and my older brother, the salami, are in New York for her birthday, 
and uh, my younger brother is in uh, Sheffield, but they keep on sending us all the time, and I send them all the pictures of food, and that's really the reason that we stick together even now. So uh, it's a great thing that keeps us all together. I am so glad that you guys have found something that does, yeah, that brings the family together. Um, I work alongside my brother and my parents. Uh, they they own and operate a uh, small turkey farm, and so this time okay. of year is very busy, being the Thanksgiving here in the United States. So, yeah, it's all hands on deck, and as much as it is hard work and it's early mornings and it's you know burning burning the candle on both ends, like we wouldn't do anything else for each other like this is why we do it we get to come together so i'm glad that you guys fun. shared that i uh, no, i think that's fantastic and the fact that we do it uh from you know uh, six thousand miles apart is fantastic and we have sunday morning conversations uh, and the first thing we always ask each other is what are you eating what have you had because they've all obviously had their meals a little more in advance than i have here because it's usually fairly early in the morning here um and then we talk about how rotherham have done which is a the town where we were born in how the, the football team which is in the championship which is just below uh, Premier League is doing, and then yeah, all, and then we go on to other conversations. But first of all, it's what have you been eating? <laughs> I also learned uh, through just other video segments that you yourself, and you mentioned a little bit on here that you have dabbled in being a sportsman, in actually hunting rabbit, um, hunting small game. Do you do you get most of your experience uh, abroad over in uh, the UK? Or have you done any uh, shooting here in the United States? I've done some shooting here. Um, you know, I've I've been dove hunting and uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, that was down in Mississippi, which was a great. I mean, I've been lucky enough to go to every uh, state now in this uh, fantastic country. And I'm, you you've know, I'm now beaten a, me. A, if you've gotten to all fifty, and you've beaten me. Holy smokes! <laughs> well, I have. I, I have been to. Yeah, I have been to all fifty, and that was the uh, uh, kind of basis of my last book, Fed, White and Blue, um, which was about me becoming an American citizen. And so uh, for me, the way to set out about it was going around and trying to find out about the food that people have in every every type of country and every personality they come from. You know, people come from all over the world and they they come here to, you know, to, and, and then they bring in American food to that. So I really liked that. And I went all over the country. Uh, when I was down in Mississippi, I went down there and I, uh, well, I, we went dove hunting at this place called Six Shooter Lodge. It was a beautiful lodge, about 20,000 acres. And so we went round and then we, we, yeah, we, we did a bit of dove hunting. I'm not saying I was that <laughs> terribly good uh, in this particular occasion, but um, and then I've been to other occasions where, quite frankly, I've done uh, more watching than uh, doing anything else because let's have you know let's have people who are really good at it do it rather than me. Uh, but when I have been in England, uh, we've done a lot of hunting with. Um, well, we have a lot more deer than you have here because you tend to have just the white tail here, whereas in England we've got about six six types of deer, I think, with muntjac and all of that, and um, and so I think that you get lots of different tastes of the meat uh, with uh, venison, and uh, I love all that because muntjac is a beautiful sweet meat, and and I always think of it about terms of cooking, um, and the other thing is I think that people in England. Are, to be honest, are a lot more inventive about using it because here we tend to get, uh, okay, we'll have a hind and we'll have this and then we'll grind the rest, which I think is delicious, but but we'll use some of the umbles, as they're called. The, uh, the humbles is what they call the innards, and that's where the term humble pie came from. Uh, so uh, it, it comes from the term where the, the beaters or the, the people who were sent out uh, – would they would get the insides because they were poor, and then the the rich people, the lords of the manor, and all of that, they would get the rest. But what would happen is the prince or the lord or whatever would often get off his uh, uh, what do you call it, his mount, and he would come and join them for their humble pie, and that was the name, and they would bake a pie, 
out of it and it would be using all the innards that you had outside inside so um i mean that kind of thing is is really uh fun for me um and then we as i say i've been rabbit hunting which is a fantastic in england it's a lot more different from it here because you what you do is you go and find a a, a warren and you go and put this uh net over the top of it and then what you have is a, a ferret um and you you kind of put it down the thing and that pushes the uh, the rabbit out into this and then you quite frankly you break its neck which again i let other people do because they're more well no but not because i don't i i mind doing it but because they're more expert at i and i you know i don't want the rabbit to you know have a poor end of life as it were uh but you know the thing about it for me is that when i go hunting or when i go along to watch hunting it, the animal has lived a great life uh we only kill it at the very kind of end of its life we're not just going to hunt anything that that's how we look at it anyway we're going to choose the deers the the uh, and other things that are at the end of their life or towards the end of their life and that allows this husbandry for the rest of them uh, and that's the kind of thing that i try when i try and explain that here in california although we have lots of hunters here as well um i try and explain that to them uh, that it it's actually a it's a matter of husbandry and looking after the animal keeping the the herd down you know and allowing the the new herd come up and you won't kill that for a while and so i think that side of it is really really important to me uh, and i find that something that people don't get unless they're kind of uh, aligned to the hunting yes yes i am so intrigued with what you had said there is just it's it's a husbandry it's as much yeah. as as much as it is a wild stock as much as it is a uh a wildlife and and the north american model of hunting yes differs a little from the uk model and I think it kind of goes along with that that husbandry thing that you guys have a very good look of what what is going on. You have maybe a more in touch um, per se than I think that that we do here in the United States. As much as we do try, shoot, you go into how many acres? In, I mean, if I'm looking exclusively in here in Michigan, you ask somebody to go, "Hey, could you go find out the population of a critter that won't stop for very long, <laughs> and then try to get yeah. a, a count on that?" And that is that is difficult. Um, but like what you said is a great way to explain to someone who is opposed to the idea of taking game or of even even eating meat that you know this is a resource that is working with our environment. If we don't do anything about that it's going to go out of balance. And I love where you brought that husbandry idea that it is a, we need to balance this. If we don't, that's when things fall apart. I think it absolutely is. And um, that's how I like to look at it. I mean, apart from the fact that uh, wild meat is delicious. You know, I love rabbit. I love hair. I love all of these different things. I love, you know, venison. Uh, you know, the term uh, venari, the term venison comes from uh, the Roman times where it meant every meat. So that's where the term actually comes from. The And, and then it's become this thing, venison now, uh, that we talk about, you know, the, being a deer. Uh, but it used to be back in Roman times, venari, which is this, you know, uh, whole thing about eating uh, any game. And, and of course, in Roman terms, they would eat anything. I mean, literally anything that came, you know, they'd have their otter and they'd have their, all of this stuff and they'd have dormouse and they'd have. But that thing about hunting things because you wanted them to be, I mean, the Romans did it particularly uh, uh, carelessly because they killed all the lions that came that existed in their area and they killed all of this because they wanted them for the circus. Uh, but a lot of them, like, they kept really good, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Hus well, husbandry of their animals. Um, and I think that was, it came from them as well, but it goes back if you go to Egypt, if you go to ancient Greece, they kept really good uh, kind of husbandry of it. 
And so I think uh, it, I, I look at it that way as well, when you look at uh, going through history. And then if you look at, I mean, England is very different. Um, you know, and you did have things in, um, say, Henry VIII's time, if you went onto the Lord's land, where you you kind of got, you know, you got hung, basically. Uh, yeah, you got hung, you got, because it was the, unless you were part of his team, and then you got the umbles. So it's a, it's a, it's a very different way to killing in America. But here's the thing I think is really important. When the British uh, or the yeah the British people came uh, to the U.S. first of all, there was really f uh, hunting here that was for the Native Americans. There was hunting that they chose, and they and they definitely did this. You know, they looked after the animals, and they took three, you know, a few each year that they took, and then they left the rest. So that was really important. And when the British came here, they were thrilled at this thing of being able to hunt animals, you know, being able to hunt. And it was everything. It was from the turkeys that you talk about, which were, you know, from the U.S. or Americas then. But it was the rabbits and it was all of these. And then it was the bison and it was all of it. And it was such a thing for them to be able to go out and hunt because they weren't allowed to do it in the uk or in the u uh, in england as it was then and because the scotland and wales were separate and i just think it became so important to them and i still remember if you go back to what was it 2008 i think it was the big you know kind of real struggle we had here mm -hmm. with people not having money and i would go to kansas city uh, and i'm i'm actually wearing my t-shirt from when I used to go to the Kansas City uh, uh, th uh, thing there for the barbecue, and I used to be on a team there. Um, but we would go to, uh, one friends of mine would go, well, do you want to come out hunting? Because it's the only way we're going to put meat on the table. Do you want to come out with us? And they'd been let go from their work, and they'd been, and so they'd go, do you want to come with us? And they would bring out their boys, or even in some cases, one of their girls, and they would shoot the animals, and they would learn to get these young people to know a how guns should be handled responsibly absolutely and b which is phenomenal and, and incredibly important here everywhere but important here in la you know where we have a lot of guns which are not being used for hunting shall we say <laughs> um and uh and they would learn how to protect to lock them away to do all of these things when they were you know old enough to use them but young enough to to be taught and I think that's the important thing, that they were taught how to use them. And for me, I think it's hunting is an important part of what makes American identity what America is. For me, it is. And that's true of, you know, people coming from different countries because they're, they are learning how to hunt too. You know, not just, you know, I'm, I'm half Indian and, you know, we, we have hunting in India. Um, but if we go, but if we have a lot of Americans, we're having lots of people coming over from Mexico, from Seoul, from wherever, and they're learning how to hunt too. And I think that's really important. I love where you brought that in. It, it really does grasp with our identity. Um, growing up, it was something that I have just always been a part of. I've always seen that. Um, yeah. I didn't necessarily partake until until later in my life. Um, when I had the chance outside, uh, once I got my career, once I was done with school, then I finally jumped in and, and it became a, a real hobby of mine, a real passion. But even as someone as coming to the U.S. and as a new citizen, to recognize that, to see that, that if in, in this new country that I have now adopted as mine, I, I see this as part of me, is that... I'm able to not only provide for myself or, you know, find uh, the pursuit of happiness, but at the same time to go pursue land that, you know, was set aside for you. We have all these public land. We have all of this state land and federal land that you yourself can go on. Essentially, you own it. And at the same yeah. time, the wildlife is owned by the populace. We all own the wildlife, but we put the state in charge of it it is in a managerial role of that and that's where we get our tags that's where we get their their doled out yeah. but i'm just so impressed that you were able to pick up to see how 
not only being and, and it's probably from your book that you've gone around and just been able to to see it, see that across our country, but how closely knit our ability to hunt and our ability to be an American system American citizen is just so closely knit. Uh, it it really is, and it's something you know. There are lots of um, expressions of being an American citizen, yeah, you know, as there are lots of other countries in the world, of course. But hunting is absolutely one of them, and. I think if the more people can do that, oh yeah, then there are plenty who just don't want to do it and don't want to be part of it. But the more that people will do it, the greater I think it has. And when they and I say I keep mentioning the word husbandry, but when they see it and they understand it, then they'll be able to do it. And I, I as I said, when I see um, and what I do see is I mentioned people from. Uh, Korea. I see people from China. I see people from Mexico. I see people from, and they all come together, and they go out and they do. And and for a lot of them, what they're doing is what kind of Americans did years ago. So they're coming at a time when they need the food. Quite frankly, um, yeah, they're, they're the Mexican uh, people who are coming over. Yes, of course, some are doing really really well, and that's fantastic. But there are some who are just. Uh, trying to be part of this country and they're so they're hunting they're fishing they're and that's where providing a lot of food for their table and that's what americans have done for centuries so i love that they're doing that um and i think it's something that i think the hunting community can be part of bringing them into the american and that's part of the it could be part of the assimilation but it can be part of who they are too um, we've always had, uh, you know, I come from a very um, uh, democratic background and I talk about, you know, lo people coming in from lots of countries that can be part of this. And hunting is one of it. Uh, it is one of it. And there are lots of others, but I, th I love, I love, love, love that they come in and they're part of it. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to take a, a little... Uh... Uh, sidestep here let's go ahead yeah. and i want to um unpack let's let's going back across the pond we're going back across the atlantic over to the uk and yes i want to take a look at how venison is used and viewed uh over over in the in the uk i you see it in butcher shops you see it in um, supermarkets. This is something that we don't have in the United States because we can't sell uh, wild meat. Uh, if it's wild which is, game, which based, I find very weird. Yeah, and it what it does is it takes the monetary value off of that meat, so that because we had we had market hunting a long time ago in our history um, when we had these big big populations of animals. And because we didn't, we never had the chance, like you alluded, we never had the chance to hunt. We never had the chance to pursue all this. We did, and we did it very effectively, and we did it very <laughs> yes, quickly, did. and we wiped out a lot. My hunting partner that I have um, that hunts with me at the farm, he, I had, it, I had a difficult time uh, communicating with him that it's okay to shoot does now because he grew up in a time when you didn't shoot does because that was going to bring the next year's uh, fawns. The population yeah. was so low that any fawn, or excuse me, any doe was considered untouchable. You do not touch does. And since then, our population has come back. It's bounced back, and now you could even, there's areas that have, you know, people are saying they're overwhelmed with deer, and we need numbers to come down. And so it's a great success story that we've been able to bounce back from. But that's where that we took out market hunting, and that's what took yeah. away the the money value. But then I watch uh, either YouTube videos or I I talk to somebody over in the UK, and they'll say, "Well, I picked up a rack from the store today, or I picked up um, a haunch from from the butchers today." And it's it's fascinating to know that that's uh, that's how venison is treated over there. But is it is it shooters creating a living off? shooting on on properties or how how is it farmed over there or how is it brought to the butchers i think that's a really fascinating question and um i think it comes from a, a variety of sources um so it will come from hunters uh who go out and they'll hunt on uh people's lands 
which is either owned by a commercial group, you know, owned by a big group, and they'll own it and they'll pay for hunters to come in and then they'll take it away and they might sell it to the butchers or they might sell it not to the supermarkets. That's a different sale, but they'll sell it to the butchers who'll check it, who'll look after it, who knows the animals. And we have a, a wide variety of butchers in England, perhaps more than you have here now, because there's only a few here. We have a lot of butchers in England. And so they'll they'll know all the animals. They'll know them. Um, and here's the thing. I mean, despite the fact we talk about from 20-something years ago now, mad cow disease, we have an immense respect for our meats. We have a, a, like all the different ones. So we'll have amazing capons and um Usan, we call them, you call them Canish, uh, Cornish game hands, will have these, but they're looked after very well. We have a far better, uh, you know, you will put, you know, different things into your chickens here that will, you know, taste unpleasant, but we have really good chickens. And so there's that side of it. So the, uh, they'll take it into the butchers and then we have, and the and the hunters will do that. Then we'll have people who they'll, basically they'll cull them like they would uh, other animals so they would uh they'll go to um you'll have a culling of uh, deer you'll have a culling of rabbits you'll have a culling of whatever's and they'll go in and that's uh you know that's just basically what you have here and they go through that you know they'll be but they it'll be smaller obviously um and then obviously we don't have elk and we don't have any of that which you have um but we do have other animals that we take and so we have things i'm trying to think of all the different animals that we have now uh, well we have a lot more birds than you have so we'll do uh, teal uh, wesant um i'm trying to think i mean all the different ones and those are known because again how those were done in about the 1900s into the victorian times all the way through people would go out and shoot those and they would get uh, a, a brace, a double, you know, thing of uh, partridge or pheasant or grouse, and we would get those every now and again. And because we have such a small season for having each animal, you would get those. And what I love about Britain is we have, uh, say, like grouse. It's from August the twelfth to I think October or something. We'll get the grouse season. So you'll go to a restaurant, a, a fine restaurant, probably, but you'll see the grouse being served in a traditional way. You'll have the the guts being put on the piece of toast at the side. You'll have the whole bird being roasted. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's absolutely delicious when you have it, but you don't get that in the in the U.S. And I think it leads us in the U.S. to yeah, we all eat you know back what do you call it filet mignon from a piece of beef, which is yep. garbage. <laughs> uh, it's just horrible. <laughs> yeah, backstrap. And I'm just like. Eh. Is it? It's really, and in fact, whenever I do my events, I always trying to do a skirt steak or a, 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 a what do you call the flat meat or something like that to try and get the people to try something different because they're basically well-off people usually who want to eat filet mignon. And I go, well, it's just it's got no taste, and so I think we in the UK have a lot more variety. Which sounds strange, being such a tiny country, uh, and compared to the U.S. But here, you go in and you just—it's you know, apart from a ribeye, there's probably not much that's that great. I—I I don't think anyway. <laughs> that's that's my uh, what do you call it? Food Network judge coming out there. But I, yeah. I do think it's it's a bit it's a little bit grim, um, because we do have a wide range. Um, and here's and then the other thing is there are certain areas. Uh, hare, uh, rabbit, the things you you can shoot overhead. Uh, uh, we have so much of them that you can go and catch yourself. You know, you can go and take a net and put it over a rabbit thing and get the rabbit, uh, the ferret in and get them up and kill them. And then you can you can use them yourself. So I, I it's an odd thing that we have a lot better uh, variety of hunting than you have here but you have a much wider view of it and a much more egalitarian view of it I think is the way of putting it which I love when in the field accuracy and precision count that's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels 
tune our arrows and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappa line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your queue. Yes. Um, and so that, yeah, like we've now we've come, we went from uh, the UK and the variety and the way that you guys use it. In fact, uh, a a, a common acquaintance that we both have. I, I consider him kind of like the guy who got me started when I would get, <laughs> I got my deer and I had to look up a video. I would went over to the Scott Ree project. I was talking. Oh yeah. With, he's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I would watch his videos over and over again. Me? In fact, sitting over a side of my own venison being like, where did he make that cut again? Where, where did he, which vertebrae did he separate off the hot, <laughs> the, the hindquarters? But from that, from that, taking the uh, lack of a better term, the old world view, and seeing the wisdom in that, and to apply that oh. now into the new world whitetail, I'm gleaning pieces that, like you said, it's it's very our the way that we view our venison. I feel is very shallow, as opposed to the depth that you get from your munjack and that you get from your road buck. Oh. That, we can apply that so much here into the United States that I feel that it, there's so many people that I think would be open to it. I just don't think we know about it yet. I think so. And here's the thing with um, Scott. I, I sent him an email. In fact, I didn't know him, uh, but I sent him an email going, uh, I want you to make, uh, I think it was chicken, uh, no, venison tikka masala. I said, I think this is a great idea. And so I, I sent him an email. He sent me one back immediately and said i think that's a brilliant idea so he got i think he he got a munchak but i can't remember which um of his animals he got but he broke it down and he used some of the um i think he used a bit of belly and a bit of something else but i can't remember exactly now and he but he created this beautiful chicken tikka which is where you uh, uh, venison tikka where you mix it in yogurt and spices and that's a traditional british dish uh, um, american di sorry american <laughs> traditional indian dish where he you put it on a skewer you put it in the tandoor oven you taste uh, it's fantastic anyway but then you make a chicken a venison tikka masala and that actually comes from britain everyone thinks that's an indian dish but it's actually uh, comes from Glasgow. It was created by a Pakistani man who I met in Glasgow um, in a place called Sheep, uh, Sheep Mahal, or can't rem uh, uh, I can't remember the exact restaurant now, but he invented, the uh, in that case, the chicken tikka masala. And uh, I, I gave um, Scott the recipe, and I said, oh, this is the recipe he gave me, probably missing a few bits out because he doesn't <laughs> want to give it all away, but, you know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but he... Oh, yes, of course. And he gave me the recipe, and then I gave it to Scott because I think everyone should try it. And he put it on uh, one of his videos, and I think it had a huge watching thing because he said, oh, I've had this thing. And everyone said, oh, I've never tried this venison tikka masala before. Now, it's a great one to do it. Um, so I think those kind of things work really well. If you could go, well, here's this recipe. Here's this recipe. Um, and it's very similar. So I decided to do, I couldn't get venison here, of course, in uh, California. Uh, but I did another thing of, of butter chicken, which is an Indian version of like what chicken tikka masala is, but it's a little less spicy. And I made a butter chicken, uh, but I was using different meats rather than the chicken. And it worked really well. And so that worked. You know, when you start doing that, you get to expand what you do on all these recipes. And so I love that he did that. 
butter chi- uh, uh, chicken tikka or venison tikka masala. Um, and I think if people in the U.S. could maybe try those again, that would be fantastic. Yeah. I was blown away the fact that I think that was my first introduction to using yogurt as a a, a binder, but then also a marinade and a tenderizer. That acidic um, yogurt working yeah. on that, that meat, that is not what I expected it to to react and I did not expect to you know to brown up so nice after hitting it on high heat. Talk to me a little oh, bit about so... yogurt and how it works with with meat. If we can take a quick side tag, how does it work? So yeah, well? no, no, absolutely. I, I I love talking about yogurt. So um, first of all, it, it comes uh, primarily it comes out of Persia or the, that area, and that was one of the things that was brought into India about the fourteen hundreds. And it was brought in to use as a marinade. It was brought in for other things, but brought in to use as a marinade. So you can use it to marinate shrimp, which is you only put for a short time. Uh, but for venison, which is a little tougher, you'll put for I, – I tend to do mine for two hours, three hours. Um, if it's slightly tougher, I'll do it a lot more. But what happens – you actually said it. That acidity works through. And what it does is it allows the – the kind of meat and spices to mix. Whereas if you just put them on top, it doesn't mix really into them. A little bit on the top, but not a lot. By using the yogurt, it goes right inside. And then when you put that on a skewer, uh, and he, I think he had it on a little uh, grill. I think he had it on a little grill thing he had. Yeah. Um, you, uh, It really flavors it. And that's something that the uh, Persians or that area took into India. And so now in India, you use that in chicken tikka, you use it in tandoori chicken, you use it in all these different things. And you use it in butter chicken or you use it in uh, chicken tikka masala. And so with venison, it works absolutely well. It's so great. And again, if you don't, if you don't come from that part of um, the world, you don't necessarily know it. Uh, but when I've been to Armenia, uh, they use it there. Um, when I've been to Georgia, the country, uh, and they and I, I've been to Azerbaijan, they use it in all of their uh, the kind of marinated meat products, the ones that they're going to leave overnight or a few hours, and then it takes on this amazing flavor. And in each country, they'll use their own spices. They've got their own mix here, their own mix in Georgia. And it just comes out with this. I'm sorry, you could feel me kind of getting very excited <laughs> about it now because I do. I get so excited about it. And it's got this beautiful flavors and it's got so much that comes in. And then obviously in um, uh, Iraq and Iran and all these wonderful countries where they're doing the meats. I mean, Iran is not such a wonderful country right now, uh, which but talking from a food point of view, it's phenomenal. And uh, when you go or to India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all those countries, amazing flavors. And I think what's happening now, what is what is good, if those people are coming over to the U.S. and they're bringing these flavors to them. So now a lot of Americans are coming up to me and said, oh, I want to use yogurt. I want to use this. I want to use um, a hedair spice or this spice or this spice. And you go, oh, yeah, where did you learn that from? Because I learned about it through travel around the world. But where did they get about it? And I love, love that. I love it. And so I think now in this country, people like yourself, you know, I'm guessing you're a lot younger than me. <laughs> a few years. But, a few um, years. Oh, a few years. Um, but when you learn, find that food by watching things like Food Network or watching whatever, or watching videos on uh, YouTube, which is fantastic, you're going, oh, yeah, I, how's that? What's that? How can I try that? So we're not having these, um, quite frankly, what the old folks used to have, which was a couple of things that people shared with them, and that was it. So I think there's more uh, coming. Uh, I think you've got lots and lots of great experiences here, fantastic food. You've got food coming up from Portugal. You've got food coming from Brazil. You've got, I mean, whatever it is. Nowadays, we talk about um, hams. There's one ham that I love. I particularly love Spain. It's my my kind of home country outside of Britain and the UK, uh, Britain and the US. Um, and they have these hams from uh, the west uh, part, which is Iberico ham. It's the Iberico ham. And it's this beautiful, I mean, they 
they will eat about 40 million of these hams a year in Spain, and they are glorious. <clears throat> and in fact, it's known as one of the most expensive ingredients in the world. And they carve these whisper-thin little uh, things, um, little slivers from it, and you just eat it, and it's fantastic. But now we're beginning to get that coming into the U.S. from the from Spain as well. In England, it was easy to get because it was all part of the you know, European Union, as was when England used to be. So you have these beautiful foods coming in now to the U.S., as well as the amazing foods that are here in in its own place. Yes, coming from the land of, I guess, sour cream or not sour cream, cream cheese here in the Midwest. Like <laughs> we are, we're being inundated with. It's so much information. And just as you were saying, like, you know, I there's traditional ways of doing things and you don't want to see tradition die uh, for the fact no. that like this is this is thing that, you know, you know, somebody taught me to do this or this is how I saw people before me doing this, you know, where you have liver and onions, you know, it, and oh, I don't want to say fantastic. Yeah, I it actually... can become a tired dish if you don't do anything other than the read off the same little index card that you haven't put any notes on or you haven't made any changes or decided to, well, I'm going to add this this year. I'm going to do, you know, if you keep it like, well, it's got to say this way because this is the way it was on the card. That's what we're finding with, you know, our summer sausage. That's what we're finding with our, our liver and onions as it's, I don't want to say stale or dying, but it's stagnant. It hasn't, it hasn't gone, gone anywhere. But then as you were talking about these influences coming in, people are wanting to try new and exciting things. And I think that's going to be a real, I think, a real uh, positive thing to to hunt. Well, what I what I always think about it is that you can do both. There are things about um, things that were done. 50, 100, 150 years ago that are phenomenal. And you go, well, I want that because I don't get to try that very often. And I want to find out how well it's made in its original view. But at the same time, you go, well, we can also do the rest. Yeah, we can do you know, things coming in from Mexico, things coming in from El Salvador, things coming. I keep on naming countries because they're phenomenal countries, but um, we can have a mixture. And that's the key. And and there's, what, 300 and something million of us in this country. We can have a mixture, uh, you know, going out and trying all the different flavors. And I just, to me, that's what makes this country so special. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm giving people a hard time about wanting the, you know, the filet mignon and all of that because it's, it's fun to do. But um, to be able to get all these um, varieties of meat that you can get here, but what we're finding now is the only place you can really get it is if you go to a Mexican market or you go to an Armenian market. I went to an Armenian market up in Glendale here, phenomenal Armenian market. And I went in and I got sweetbreads, beautiful beef sweetbreads, and they're gorgeous. And they're, you know, but they're from the inside, they're from the thymus gland. And they're, but these are gorgeous. I mean, um, but people in the, in the US don't really eat them anymore in the in the UK in France in Spain they love these things um i got you know i mean not so um, but oxtails which are just beautiful and and just so rich and succulent and delicious uh, we got uh, lamb breast so it's just got the lamb breast on it it's got a little bit of ribs but lots of you know juicy succulent meat and it's just phenomenal but they're selling it all to their Armenian pals. And so, you know, when we went in, my my wife is Filipino. I'm, you know, half British, uh, half uh, Indian, half Welsh for my background. But we were, they're like, oh, what are you looking for? And I was like, oh, I want the sweetbreads. I want this. I'll have this. And then they kind of recognized me from the show. And that was fine. But they, they were like, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. And this is good with this. And this is good. If we can go in and do that, we're going to be so excited with our food. And I think it's people like you, quite frankly, you're, I'm guessing, 30-something? You betcha. Right there. Yeah, 37. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So you're going to go in and you're going to uh, enter any of these places and go, oh, can I try that? Can I 
I, it's one thing. I'll try it. It could be sweetbreads. It could be anything. And that's the joy of what this country has, because you've now got people come and it's, this, this is not about an illegal immigrant or blah, blah, blah. It's not about that. It's let's use them while they're here. Yeah, we, let's use them uh, because they are bringing fantastic ingredients with them. Uh, you know, I've got um, uh, Scandin- no, Finnish uh, rye bread, which is a particular rye bread that they bought. So I bought this at another thing that was next to the Armenian store. And I went, oh, let's go in there because they'll have this. And it was happened to be a Finnish store. I'm like, well, let's go in there. It's amazing what we have here. And so by doing that, I think it's going to bring us kind of lots of anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm raving on now, but it's yeah. lots of food. But going back to hunting, because I know you wanted to, um, I think hunting is another thing that people need to, they don't need to necessarily, if they're not hunters, go out, but they need to buy from those hunters. They need to expand what they're doing from those hunters, you know, and and I think it's going to be, you know, wonderful. When we went to the Armenian store again, they bought in uh, wild rabbits and they were just like, they've got these wild rabbits around the corner, you know. <laughs> Yeah, come and have a look. And I was like, oh, well, we, we don't have any space for them today, but it's good to know that you've got them there, you know. And But it's kind of silly that they have to kind of put them on the show and like, look, look, look down here. Look, I've got these in my back pocket, which is I think is just silly. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, you know, the whole different program that we have because as much as we we love our hunting heritage, it's one of those things that, we need to be able to share as much of our heritage as possible. We need to share why we're doing this because there's a lot of folks that are asking a lot of questions. They're asking, you know, why are you shooting these animals? Is it, is it just yeah. for the antlers on your wall? I mean, here I am sitting, this is my first buck I ever <laughs> took. He's kind of like the reason this whole thing started, but at the same time, people wonder is the, the antlers are what you are after, or are you really after uh, the meat of it? And, to be able to, you know, make dishes that I've never made before or to enjoy parts of the animal that normally I, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that. And then to share that experience, I feel like I've really taken up that that olive branch or even, I guess, the spearhead at this point to to push on and say, like, this is this is why we hunt. This is why we're here. I understand this is what you see. But at the same time, come to the table with me and let me share this for you and tell me tell you about this experience because i'd rather have somebody come to the woods and see what we're do see how we hunt these yeah. animals and then you know at that point they're going to be talking about well next season can can i shoot at one this year like i think that's going to really <laughs> really turn some heads at that but the the idea of like what you're saying as much as as much as folks are coming to the u.s and they're sharing their flavor we have a whole flavor here of our own and we need oh. to share it we we shouldn't be now we eat a lot of grind i know we, you had this earlier that yeah we're going to keep the, we're going to keep the steaks we're going to keep the backstrap and the rest goes to grind we use grind a lot in our house i have three young boys so i mean it's yeah. it's tacos it's spaghetti it's hamburgers you know it, as much as i can put down of the throats but at the same time to find the find those really hard worked muscles because that's where that flavor oh. hides. The shank, oh. shank's my favorite, and it's, I love it. At first, you could bounce it off the table, but you put that in a Dutch oven for eight hours, it's, and you can't get absolutely. Any better than that. No, absolutely. And when you uh, try those of you know the different types of deer, um, they're so succulent. But you have to spend some time cooking them. That's the other thing. I think a lot of it now we've got you know young people who are rushing around and doing things we've got older people who don't maybe want to rush so much and they tend to cook the you know, the shanks they tend to cook those but because they don't get the shanks as much because they're not hunting or they're not doing anything they don't get to taste them and here's the thing i would always say and it's kind of um uh what's the word a, a kind of forward path into hunting i always think of this if you look at um sheep okay so you have lamb which is uh one to kind of 12 years or uh, 12 months old then you have 
Hoggett, which is 12 months to 18 years, uh, 18 months old. It's called Hoggett, which we have in England, which is a slightly, uh, I hate the term gamey. I hate it. Oh, it's gamey. No. Um, But they go, okay. And then they have mutton, which is from 18 months to kind of onwards until they kill it. And what I always say is, okay, let's go through lamb because that will get you to taste. I don't know whether we have hoggett here, but you will have mutton, because you you say it really from 12 months onwards is mutton here. But it, I like to have that thing in the middle, hoggett, because it's a very different taste. Um, but if you go in and have a, a mutton uh, stew, or you have, they're phenomenal. And it'll give you that, that taste. I, I, I say I hate the word gaminess. Uh, to understand what that flavor is now then when you and then when you turn that over towards you know game meat which is a different thing you will begin to understand what it is but here we tend to have apart from again going to these markets you tend to have the lamb one to you know up until about 12 months old and that's what you have and in again in the uk we'll tend to have a mixture of all of those so you can go in and buy hoggett, you can go in and buy lamb, and you go in and buy mutton. And and that is a way that you can get into this um, game flavor, but not gaminess, because that's all like, oh, it's gamey. It's all it's nonsense. It's all nonsense. I'm sorry, but it is. No, <laughs> I, that is a soapbox that I will stand on there with you. These are animals that are not raised on any sort of feed. They have browsed everything that they've eaten now i'm not so uh naive to say that they're not out in the cornfields they're not out in the soybeans eating that but their diet is totally supplemented by other brows uh from where they're bedded down deep in the woods i mean they're shoot winter time here in michigan when there's nothing that's green they're nipping on buds and they're eating uh the the bark off twigs and it's yep. this whole gourmet, this whole smorgasbord of feed. And depending on where they feed and where they are, that those little nuances change. And oh, I yeah. hear it from guys yeah, that are, they, do. they get it out of a cedar swamp, this big old rutting buck. And they think like, I just, ah, it's going to taste bad. But it doesn't taste like the young beef that you're getting from the supermarket. It's, it's going to taste its own thing. So I'm so glad to hear you say that, listen, we got we to gotta grow up past gamey, and we have to understand the nuances. We have to understand why it tastes like this and use that flavor to our advantage. Well, the way I look at it is that uh, you treat the animals as you would almost treat a crop. So you'd have crops that grow in the in the summer and grow and and you go well they'll have one flavor but you do have winter crops that you'll grow in another area and say I, I i remember this from wisconsin where they're growing the the afternoon cheese and the uh yeah the milk for it and but you can have where the animals go in the in the winter and what they're eating and their meats are going to be totally different they're totally different. Uh, and by trying to say, oh, well, that's not nice, what you're saying is you don't have a capacity to like that meat because that meat is just delicious. But one is a summer meat and one is a winter meat. And that's what you have to understand. The thing I still remember reading about this, that one of the native uh, tribes, and I can't remember which of the Native American tri- uh, people here, uh, talked to one of the early settlers here but probably before the um around 1700 or something but talk to them about the animals and how they treated them and how they tasted them and they said they're totally different and it took it took a kind of british brain to go oh well it's what's happening it's all the same to kind of bring that down and the uh, native american uh, people were so um, nuanced to this to where the different animals would come in in the state of their life that it was and it wasn't that hard for them i i i I go on about it a lot well this has been so much fun simon i've got (laughs) one last crescendo to our show here and it's we're going to do a a little it's a mini food game Um, okay oh gosh (laughs) okay 
I'm calling it good, better, and best. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe a good dish and the the basic parts that are in that dish, and that's that'll that's come come across as good. I'm then going to describe how I'm going to make that dish better. So I'm going to step up from just a good dish. I'm going to bring it up to a better okay. dish. Okay. This is where you come in. You get to finish by making that dish the best. And you'll give us some tips and tricks on how you're going to make that the best dish. Ever. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> nervous now, but let's, let's carry on. <laughs> Good. Well, it's, it's a favorite here in uh, the Midwest. We're going to go with a venison pot roast. So this is the dish. Okay. Um, so yeah, we're using a large muscle group. Uh, I, for good, it can just use a little salt and pepper. Uh, throw it in with a crock pot. Bring water up to the sides. You're going to add onions, carrots, and potatoes. And you're going to let that stew. That is our good level. That's going to be our, okay. our bare minimum. So we've got something that has potential. Here's how I'm going to take venison pot roast to the next level. So here's my better one. Is I'm going to go with a heavier worked muscle. I want I want something that's done a lot of work. I still want to yep. keep a lot of muscle tissue because I want a nice big piece of roast that's going to in there. I'm going to go with, if it was a doe or a smaller deer, I would like to use a whole shoulder. I would like to use the okay, that's blade lovely. roast and the, the mm -hmm. mid roast. The shank is probably going to be taken off at that point, so we'll use those two cuts. Um, uh, I'm going to stick with salt and pepper. I'm going to go in a Dutch oven. I've got better better uh, um, results with a Dutch oven. Um, I'm going to, well, yeah, I'm going to get that ripping hot. I'm going to sear it on all sides. And then what do I have in my notes here? Got to go back to my notes. Oh, um, I'm going to have a little venison stock with me. I'm also going to have a dark porter. And I'm going to put the two of those together, and that's going to be my braising liquid. And I'll bring that up halfway on the sides. With an hour left... Because I want there to be some toothiness to my veg, I'm going to put the carrots and potatoes in with an hour left. And with 20 minutes left on the cook, I'm going to put parsnips. And that's going to be my dish. So it's going to be a shoulder of venison uh, with salt and pepper. And I'm going carrots, potatoes, and carrots, potatoes, onions, and parsnips. That's my better. Okay. Well... I think if I was going to make this best, I would actually use a Dutch oven um, because I think that's so. First of all, I would be I'd sear the meat before I put it in. I'd sear it on all the sides because what that does it brings out the Maillard reaction. It's called the Maillard reaction that brings out all the colours. That's the colour you get on a, a steak when you put it in a hot pan. It gets this. this um, I don't even know. Well, it's the Maillard reaction. It's that beautiful crunchy. Uh, steak that you get and it would be true on this so you get a lot of crunch over it because that won't impact the inside of it but it will get this crunch on the outside it will evenly uh and even if it's just going to steam in there it's still going to have that a little bit of that crunch on it yeah. um i would uh i would put a little bit of, of venison stock i would put a little bit of red wine so I would use red wine rather than the porter. Um, and I'd bring that up. And it, again, as you said, it should come up to about uh, two-thirds of the side of the uh, of the animal. So it should, uh, when you're braising or doing that, it must only come up to about two-thirds, which is uh, uh, it's not stewing. So you mustn't do that because you need to pot uh, The two things that I would do, I would flip it over in the, in the pan, in that mixture. So, you know, Every hour, flip it over. Every hour, oh. flip it over. So you're getting a lot of that juice going in there. And, uh, then I would do two things. I would put potatoes and carrots in at the beginning. And when I take out the animal, I would braise those. I would um, pan, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, using my immersion circulator, I would put those into the sauce. So I'd break down the carrots break down the uh, the potatoes and put those into the sauce so those oh. are and then i would put in a few carrots a uh, few uh, pepper uh, uh, 
what do you call them? Uh, my mind has gone. The the parsnips, yeah. and I'd put those in, and and then I'd let those braise in there as well. Put the uh, the animal back in, and just flip that in. So that what you've got is you've got a little bit of the flavour going through the stock as well as being in the stock. That would be what I would do, um, and then. I would do a, another thing as well. I would just do a little bit of red wine in at the end. Now, a lot of people disagree with me on that. I know Alex Guanicelli doesn't like that little bit of red wine in the end of there. But just to mix that red wine through, I think it would work really well. The other thing that I would put in there from the beginning, I'd put some rosemary, I'd put some thyme, put some oregano, any one of those, and mix that through as well. And those will bring out the flavors. Those And what here's the thing. When you pot roasts were originally done in winter time, you left them when you went out, and so what we forget to do here is we kind of go, oh, dried herbs, they're all a bit meh, you know, because we'll get fresh herbs. And dried herbs had a point; they were actually produced by the people in farms wherever, and they would keep them in summer and they would use them during winter. So they would dry them out, put them in a thing, and then they would use those. And those would be things that they would use in pot roasts. So I love using a little bit of dried herbs, uh, rosemary, tarragon, uh, not tarragon, but uh, oregano, stuff like that. And they're really flavorful. They're really not putting the fresh herbs, which will go a bit black or go just putting the, uh, those herbs in and they will be so delicious in there. And you don't want it to be too clever. Uh, but by doing that, by breaking the potatoes and carrots down in the sauce, by using fresh herb, uh, dried herbs in there, and by using a little red wine and using red wine in the stock, I think, and then using that whole shoulder that you're talking about, that would be the perfect one for me anyway. Uh, I mean, it's it's beautiful in each animal. So if you can get a, like a, um, not a munchak, because that's uh, uh, going to be too kind of almost lean, uh, but one of the older ones, that would be perfect. Um, and that's, and to me, that's what I'd uh, serve it. Now, the other key is to serve it with Robochon mashed potatoes. So Robochon was this uh, uh, chef from France, and he came um, and he did this potato dish where it's 100%, but 50% butter, 50% uh, <laughs> potatoes. And he mixed them down, and they're beautiful. Put that on the side with a little in a little copper dish, yeah. Which, and then do some peas or whatever, and that to me would be the most beautiful meal. And and I love 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 pot roasts. I do. And for people who go eh, pot roasts, they're all a bit and grim. They're doing them in a crock pot. They're doing them. Uh, yeah, they're just not doing them well. Is the truth. And uh, pot roasts are just the most beautiful thing. So I hope that made some sense. Oh, that made beautiful sense i am rather than because we've always gone to the point of just like well what do we do with the braising liquid after it well let's just turn it into a, a gravy and where you're taking it and saying no let's let's keep it a sauce let's take the immersion yeah. blender and as much as i'm like ah oh, we've lost this potato it's too mushy because i want some toothiness to it like you just said let it get mushy i'm gonna blitz it down in there that starchiness is going to thicken it up. The sweetness from the carrot, the sweetness from the parsnip is just going to add so much to that sauce that sacrificing those little pieces and then blitzing them down in there. Oh, I'm just going to be I'm going to be looking for another piece of bread to soak it all up with. <laughs> uh, well, that's how I would do it. But uh, and, and I think it would be either way. Uh, it, well, no, you had two ways, but. Uh, all the way, it's going to be delicious anyway, uh, and people can make it any way they want, and it's going to be fantastic. Um, but if I was trying to make it somewhere for a restaurant and I wanted to serve it on a big platter with the sauces and everything else, that's how I would do it, and it would be phenomenal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you took the, You definitely did the best. Congratulations. that uh, <laughs> You played the game well. <laughs> You're good at food games. Thank I guess. you. That's what you Thank do for you. a living, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, this has come to the end of our hour. Um, Simon, where where can folks uh, engage with you? Where can they find you on social media? And uh, where can they listen to you on, on your podcast? 
Uh, my podcast is called Eat My Globe, uh, which is a food history podcast. We actually started this uh, season this week, uh, which is uh, with a wonderful uh, uh, Burmese chef who lives in the UK, who's talking about Burmese food used as protest, which is a, a phenomenal thing. Um, but we've got people like Andrew Zimmerman. We've got people like him coming on. So we're going to have some fun ones. Um, uh, so that's that. And then on uh, Twitter, I'm you know, at Simon Majumda because I think I'm the only one called Simon Majumda in the world. I don't um, know. For $8, um, yeah. I could be Simon Majumda. <laughs> you, yeah, you, you could be these days. Um, and then uh, on Facebook, uh, Simon, you know, at Simon Majumda, uh, Instagram, at Simon Majumda. But on uh TikTok, which we we go on to do, and this is weird. We go on to do uh, Simon Majumda reads, where I read in a very British accent all the rap songs and all the songs I can find from the eighties and nineties in a very British accent. That's basically almost what we do, and uh, and so we've got. I think we have one of me and Snoop Dogg doing gin and juice or something. It's oh, all my very. Goodness. Uh, which I is, don't have TikTok, uh, but I now will have it by the end of the night because I need to listen to go you. Go and have a look at it. And if you look at the beginning, I just kind of mess around with it because I do love to uh, do those. Um, but if you're on any of those, please, please, please come and chat to me. I'm hopefully as chatty as I am <laughs> talking to you. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, this has been fantastic. Just being able to talk about hunting, to be able to talk about the you know the husbandry as I talked about earlier all of this is really important to me and uh, hunting to me then isn't just about you know going out and seeing people in their you know clothes and doing all of this it's about the the quality of the meat that they get it's it's about you know the everything about it is just important to me uh, and even though I don't get to do it very often I love it when I'm coming along to see it Excellent. I really am. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, hold on for just a second, Simon. I'm going to let our listeners on out. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed this chat as much as I have. To glean wisdom off of Simon here, of his exploration of the world, and even going back across the pond to the old world ways of doing things, there was a reason why. And can we apply that to what we're doing now? We see the differences and we see the things that are di that are not the same. And now we need to start asking those bigger questions of why is it done that way and how can I apply that to bring more taste to my venison, to bring more quality to my venison. These are all the questions that we should be asking. But folks, whether it's you uh, trying out a new cut or whether it's you doing the same dish with just a little bit of different tweak, I hope the dish that you're, or I hope the knife that you're preparing this all with is very sharp.